0: Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime.
1: What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode, Deja Vu All Over Again. The last one ended about 10 minutes ago, and uh, welcome back to this episode. Uh, It is the podcast, as you know, I can't get past this comment right here, from Nona Malou, warm brownies and peppermint chip (laughs) ice cream. That is brutal because i'm trying to be healthy i had salad for lunch and this is just i'm a sugar addict and now i'm being tempted in the worst of ways um love how sds collaborates so positively with other podcasters as i was thank you very much we had a bunch of people on last night um it's not shtick i'm really trying to you know i was a competitive idiot in my news days and try to, you know, be first and all these different things. And that's still in my blood, but I really think it benefits us if we all are kind to each other and work together. As Meve Moen, our uh, partner in crime, says, a rising tide lifts all ships. Some people think I'm BSing when I say that, but I really do mean it. So there you go, and uh, Carm will attest to it. Carm was a guest on the last show. But once again, Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that brings you the best guess in true crime tonight. It is the best guess when it comes to digital forensics. Uh, we are back talking about the Dan Markell murder and, of course, uh, Charlie Adelson's recent conviction and Donna Adelson's recent being taken into custody. Uh, after nine plus years, Donna Adelson, the matriarch of the Adel- Adelson family. She appeared in a Tallahassee courtroom to hear those charges levied against her, including murder and conspiracy to kill her ex-son-in-law, FSU law professor, Dan Markell. This part of this case, and I'm not a science or a forensics guy, and I told our guests this, but it's fascinating to me, and I'll tell you why. My dear mother, she calls me and 90% of the time leaves the phone on for 30 minutes afterwards. Or she FaceTimes me and I'm staring at, uh, it's become a thing at STS where I post it on Instagram at Surviving the Survivor. I would, I'll be staring at her ceiling lights or I'll be staring at a portion of a painting in her condo. Um, needless to say, she's not very adept with her cell phone or computer. So... When I heard that Donna had her uh, phone seized and and Harvey, who's 80, had his iPad and phone seized, I said, whoa, this could be something. Digital forensic experts are going to be all over this. And I feel like this could potentially blow open the case. And here to discuss this is John Sawicki. He is Tallahassee-based, and I'm going to let him explain. He testified in previous uh, cases. John, you went a little dark on us, and you're a handsome guy. If there's a light, I just want people to know that they can see you. Um, it's okay if you can't, but... Um,
0: Maybe the best I can do right now.
1: Okay, that's perfect. I think when you dip back, we, we lost a little of your light. But John Sawicki in Tallahassee founded Forensic data corporation focused on providing the premier computer forensics and e-discovery services to law firms, corporations, and government agencies throughout the Southeast United Mm -hmm. States. I believe uh, he is licensed uh, as a private investigation agency in Florida. Are you also an attorney, um, John? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, He got out of that to do this. Then next up on the top right with the American flag, you have Dr. Thomas Heislip, he is a professor in the Criminology Department at the University of South Florida. He also served as a federal law enforcement officer for over 23 (laughs) years, specializing in cybercrime investigations and digital forensics. That's why he's here to talk about digital forensics. And then last but not least, the man who looks like he's kind of undercover with a hat, furtive. He is a special agent at the United States Department of Defense. He's an experienced special age, senior special agent with a demonstrated history of working in the military industry, highly skilled in computer investigations, network intrusions, intelligence analysis, government systems, systems and computer forensics. And uh, he's going to remain with one name, Gary. That's all you need to know. So welcome to everybody. Really appreciate uh, you guys being here. To the professor first, Dr. Uh, Tom Heislet. For those who don't know, I mean, in a in a sentence or two, just explain what 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 encompasses digital forensics? Well, it's any any type of device that stores electronic data. It can be
2: a cell phone, a computer, um, your car, your smartwatch, and the list goes on and on. But the forensics part is retrieving and extracting the data out of those devices and and looking at it. And in in the criminal world, we're looking for uh, evidence of the crime on those devices. That's it. Pretty simple.
1: Mm. Um, John Sawicki, to you, just tell the audience, because the people here have really followed uh, Wesley John Holmes back. He's an Australian in Tokyo. I love saying that. I love the fact that uh, he's made these moves. Chelsea Whitaker in the house. Ski Hat Sarah's here. Rachel, happy birthday to one of the best mods ever. Wishing you all the best. Jersey's own Copper Horse. You are incredibly kind, generous, and thoughtful, and we are extremely lucky to have you as part of the STS team. Thank you to uh, Copper Horse. But, John, you uh, did testify in some of these cases related to the Dan Markell murder. Tell us which ones, at what point, and uh, what it was like for you.
0: So, I testified in the uh, Sigfredo garcia Katie McBanowat trial, essentially the first trial that but- took place in this case. Um, probably a little different than the last couple that we've seen, mostly because everything was um, pretty well unexposed at that point, for lack of a better term. We hadn't seen it yet. Yeah, we'd seen the materials and discovery, but we hadn't seen the state's full presentation, um, hadn't seen any of the defense presentations at that point. And so I think that's probably the biggest you know, takeaway from that first one is that's what it was, was the first uh, you know, presentation of the evidence.
1: Mm. Uh, I hope you guys don't take this the wrong way because I'm one too, but they say we've got the geek squad here. Um, (laughs) That's also kind of a play because uh, Wendy Adelson called the the geek squad from Best Buy to come try to fix her TV set early on. So there you go. And uh, Gen X Granny Ahmad pointing out, Joel needs more beard for this panel. It's a constant struggle. I'd have it down to my toes if I could, but uh, (laughs) Carm and my wife scream at me. So, um, Black Widow says, I'm sad karma's gone. She's coming to us from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, That is where she is. So, um, Gary, um, I know, you know, you're doing your own thing day to day, but you're a whiz when it comes to this stuff. So to put things in perspective, um, Charlie Adelson is convicted on November 6th, which is a Monday, he goes back to his jail cell. No one in the world, especially in Tallahassee, where John is ever could have ex- expected that just a week later, his mother, Donna Adelson, would try to flee the country. She was on the jetway. They let, they let her get onto the jetway, um, I think, for a future trial to show that she was really trying to flee. Uh, the stupidity of this amazes me. They only bought a one-way ticket, her and her husband. Uh, they have the means to bought a private, uh, you know, flight somewhere, but uh, they they paid for a one way ticket. So if this goes to trial, it's going to implicate her in terms of consciousness of guilt, um, I think. And my point is this. When they arrested her, the FBI agent tried to literally take her phone and she did one of these. She tried to not let the FBI agent take it, but they ultimately seized her phone and husband harvey's phone and then went back with a search warrant got ipads and some additional devices what is happening to those
3: devices right now all right so so those um those devices are going to be secured first and foremost they're you know from the basic things they're going to turn off the antennas put it in airplane mode and we have uh the faraday bags if you're familiar with them they're like magnetically shielded bags they're usually stored in those devices so no one can track them uh no one can remotely wipe them is a big thing. First and foremost, that's what's happening. They were secured. Once they get them into a secure area, depending on what level of you know threat they think people have, you know, can access it, um, they're gonna start going through them uh forensically, right? Um they're going they're gonna put them into devices that we use to capture the data, they're gonna put them. Um, you know, they basically in in a, in a state that no one can mess with it, and they can't be altered. They're going to be kind of frozen in time with whatever data is on there now. That's mainly what. That's that's the first step in any of this digital forensics, especially when it comes to mobile devices that have some sort of remote access capability. Mm.
1: Uh, SDS Nation, since I know nothing about digital forensics, I'm going to need your guys' help. And I put those uh, capital Q's in the chat. Uh, come up with some questions for these guys. They know the ins and outs of this, like uh, nobody's business. So if you've ever had questions about digital forensics and are they going to be able to, uh, you know, track down the Adelson's because of this and without knowing much about anything, I do think uh, just again, I once had uh, um, I worked in business news and there was a guy named Alas Smith. I I wonder if he's still alive. Um, Very interesting guy. His dad, his dad ran United Press International. His dad was a bit of a legend. And he was an economist and he used to do business news. And every year he would take an Amtrak train ride across the country. And I was like, Delos, why do you do this? Do you? He always is a very quirky guy, little heavy set, um, hair sticking up, and uh, kind of a character. And he said that he loved to take the Amtrak cross country because the only way to really gauge the economy is to go onto the main streets in different towns and see how. Uh, you know, it was faring. And so um, that was the moral of that story. The moral of my story is I've seen, as I said off the top, my mother deal with computers and phones and, and iPads, and she can't do it. And I have a feeling Don and Harvey are in the same boat. So Dr. Thomas Heislip, do you think, as I do, that there might be some really valuable information on here that law enforcement is going to be able to kind of Skim from these devices.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, they were fleeing uh, the Vietnam because there's no extradition there to the United States. If you know, if you're convicted of a crime, and so at the very least, they're going to be looking for search histories to see if they search for countries that don't have extradition, um, and then any text messages, uh, you know, are on there. The different phone calls, um, any emails, uh, the, um, you know, the, the and then you know i read about the moving the finances right so if they're in their planning trying to relocate their finances overseas to vietnam or some other foreign country where they can gain access to it once they once they got out of the country there could be a lot of information about that with their logins and changing this uh moving the money around but the device itself you know you're looking at the the, the searches um the responses um the, the links they went to and that all you know shows to their uh their mindset and their intent um And chances are they didn't even think about taking what you would call anti-forensic measures to not have that information on there. I'd
3: like to add one thing on that, and that is um, a lot of these these devices are also kind of built-in GPS trackers. So they're going to watch – they're going to actually keep track of locations, whether it's the cell towers that they're pinging off of or actually, like – if you have a Google maps or Apple maps or whatever running on there, it's very possible their location data is stored on there too. We can get off off of there. So we know where you've been, who you maybe ran to talk to uh, in person thinking that you're going to be, you know, coy and not use your cell phone and communicate. You'll meet somewhere. You can usually find out where they've been just by their phone.
1: Wow. Annie K, John, a question here. How long will it take to get the information from their calls and texts since there is so much of it?
0: So, there's really a couple different sources for uh, at least call information, transactional information about who's calling who. Um, first of all, the cell phone carrier is going to have a record of all of those phone calls. Law enforcement's already got it. They've got it. Uh, and they probably had it within, you know, days of the time that uh, uh, Donna was arrested. In terms of getting into the devices, Uh, that depends on how well they were protected. How long of a passcode do they have in place? Um, Obviously, if they have to brute force the device, uh, a short passcode, four digits numbers goes much quicker than a longer passcode, say uh, six or eight digits, and especially you start throwing alphanumeric uh, characters in there. I got to tell you, Donna Adelson does not seem like the type of person running an eight-digit passcode or longer. Um, I mean, we're talking about somebody who left uh, the phone running, and apparently there's a pretty good recording on the the jail phone system of her talking about some of the I don't know if it's the plans or at least the uh, uh, intent to look for a place where they can actually travel to. So yeah, I don't think that she's you know running a an eight digit passcode. So if we're talking four digits, six digits, um, depending on just how that phone is set up, that could be compromised in a matter of minutes or hours.
1: Uh, Gary, back to you for a second. So, you know, in the Alec Murdoch trial, this is a case where Alec Murdoch is convicted of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie. Um, They got a phone from the other son, Buster Murdoch, and they couldn't crack it. And, you know, they only get three tries or whatever. And uh, the detective talked, I think this was on Dateline NBC, he just did t- they took a shot in the dark and used his birthday and it, and it opened. Um, and he said something to the effect of if we couldn't have done this, it could have taken us seven or eight years um, to try to figure this out. But what is the deal with passcodes? Everyone, you know, it's got an iPhone or an Android, but on the iPhone, which I have, you know, you have to put in that code. Um, law enforcement is not privy. And obviously Donna Adelson and Harvey are not giving them the codes. So what is the workaround right now? And is Apple, um, I know at one point Apple had all these privacy issues, but what is, what's the current state of getting in through passwords?
3: Yeah, so, so just so you know, on a technical point, those passcodes, four digits, eight digits, they just basically unlock the much bigger key that encrypts all the data. That's why it's hard to get to, you know, we can get to a phone and pull the data off, but it's encrypted behind a huge password. So what we really need access to is those first few digits keys, right? And Apple's system for, for locking that and, and, and not being able to, uh, to prevent that is to basically give you what, 10 tries, five tries, and a wipe, right? And then it wipes the phone, basically wipes the keys. However, um, there is sort of a workaround in that. And there's a device that's popularly used called the uh, gray key, um, which I think Tom, we were talking about earlier, was, was recently bought out by another company. But in general, the gray key is a, a device. Um, and a combination of hardware and software that will take a phone, attempt to brute force the password, right guessing 0000, 00001, whatever it is. However, before the in, in its basic format, before the Apple iPhone has a chance to up its counter for how many times a miss code has been put in, um, kind of uses some sort of bug in it, and it will stop the counter from going, so we can keep trying it indefinitely. So that's kind of the current state of password cracking of iPhones today. Um, it's a fairly effective technology. Depending on the length of the actual code, whether it's ten digits or a, a whatever it might be, um, it could take a while. But they're, for all practical, those phones are now crackable um, using that technology.
1: So, so Dr. Heislip, um, is it a foregone conclusion that these devices will be opened and thoroughly examined? Is there any concern that the passwords are going to keep you know the forensic experts out of them? I would say there's a
2: small, very, very slim chance that they won't get in. You know, like you said, the detective in the Murdoch case said it you know, could be seven, ten years. I mean, I've used Great Key or there's another company called Celebrate Premium does a similar service. Um, and with a very secure password, it could take, you know, I've seen in the, into the years. You never get it right. Um, but it really goes back you know, uh, to what we were talking about earlier, the the length of the passcode and and how secure it is. Um, so more than likely elderly people, they're going to have a simple passcode, probably be able to get in, uh, fairly quickly. Um, worst case scenario, say they win six digits and, you know, it could be weeks or a month. Um, but there's always the off chance, uh, it could go years.
1: Um, Let me ask you (laughs) this. Is this done is. by, is there literally a, a human being physically inputting a password or are they connected to uh, some sort of computer that's trying? <laughs> it's there's connected a computer. to
2: a device and you just hit go. <laughs> you just hit go. <laughs> and, okay. uh, let it run. <laughs> and and you, you walk into a forensics lab and say the FBI, you know, like the FBI right now, their, their CARP team um, has these devices. They'll, is it, it, is that Cellbrite? Devices. Is it Cellbrite? well uh Gray Key, uh was just bought by it was a great shift as a company The device is called Gray Key. It was just bought by magnet axiom uh, Magnet is the company out of out of Canada um, They just merged and acquired them and then the other one is uh celebrate their premium service they do pretty much the same thing and some are better others it's a cat and mouse game between you know Google and Apple updating their security and making changes as these two companies develop workarounds for them and so depending you know if a new iPhone, like the iPhone 15 Pro just came out, if these um, uh, Adelsons had iPhone 15 Pros, the gray Key and the Celebrate might not have the technology to break them right now. And that's why I say you just don't know because it's a cat and mouse game. So whenever they come out with a new device or a new security update, the Grey Key and Celebrate companies need to then take those take them software packages and develop a new uh, uh, workaround to get past that security. So. More than likely, they'll get in quickly, but there's always the chance that it could be a long time or never.
1: Yeah, I always have, uh, every Friday, I've got a special agent from the FBI retired. He says that uh, law enforcement is always like a half step behind the the tech companies. But, um, John, this is uh, something that everyone was talking about at one point. There's a belief that uh, there's incriminating messages that were uh, sent back and forth, even between Charlie and Wendy using WhatsApp. Um, WhatsApp. for lack of a better term, hackable. Is it something that you guys can get into at this
0: point? It's not even really a, a function of hackable. WhatsApp is end to end encrypted, which means while that message is being transmitted from one device to the other device, it's actually encrypted while it's being transmitted over the internet. However, it's vulnerable on both ends of that end to end encryption and it can be readily pulled via CellBright, via Axiom, by a number of other tools. And so if there are WhatsApp messages in there, yeah, I'd expect that they're going to get to them. Um, I also think it's important to note that uh, even if they can't get in there today, that doesn't mean that tomorrow, next week, next month, they're not going to be into those devices and have pulled all that data. And we're probably at least a year, maybe 18 months or longer from from a trial for Donna Adelson and and Adelson. And so I don't think that there is... Uh, Uh, A whole lot in that phone that's going to be secret by the time that they actually get there.
1: Um, Giovanni's Pikachu right on the money. Joel's question, how do I reconnect Bluetooth? If I told you how many times (laughs) I banged my head just trying to figure that out in the car, it's unreal. (laughs) You know, I'm in such a weird spot. I mean, we're probably all somewhat similar in age, but I'm 54. And in high school, I had to cheat off of Steve Isaacoff the entire year because I – we were taught Pascal, which I don't even think, is that a language? Does that even exist?
3: In the government. It does? <laughs> yeah. All systems.
1: Yeah. Back then, I was like, what the hell is this? We had the worst teacher, Terry Jern, may he rest in peace. Nice guy, but the most boring guy. And uh, the only person who knew what was going on was Steve Isaacoff. You know what happened to Steve Isakoff? Went to Princeton, went to Harvard, MD, PhD. He's uh, curing cancer. And I'm... Um, and I'm doing podcasts. So uh, <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, John, to you, you're in the epicenter here. I mean, you testified. What, what, what's, the rea- what's the buzz in Tallahassee like right now, especially in the last you know, couple of weeks now with Charlie's conviction, Charlie's sentencing, Donna being in court, Donna in custody? What, what is the word on the street? Um, is there a heightened uh, interest, a heightened sense of awareness?
0: So, just just to be clear, I am, yeah, my office is based in Tallahassee. I live in Tampa, so I'm at least a little bit removed. I've lived down here for a year or so <laughs> outside the Tallahassee area, but I am still in contact with enough folks that, yeah, of course, there's a buzz that goes with that. I think uh, uh, Donna's arrest in particular took pretty much everybody by surprise. I, I don't think anybody really saw that coming as quickly as it happened. And so that's one of those things that. Anytime you've got something like that in a high-profile profile case like this, uh, yeah, word gets passed around the community. And so uh, Tallahassee is a—it's a, yeah, a decent-sized community, but it's a very, very small legal community in terms of of lawyers, particularly those practicing the criminal defense or or criminal arena. Uh, I mean, you know, you've had folks on over the last, you know, several weeks that you know I've worked in depth with on other cases. Uh, doing other stuff. And so most of those folks all know each other. It's, you know, everybody uh, works together and and it's probably a little more collegial than it is other places. But in terms of the overall buzz, yeah, it's, uh, uh, this is clearly a hot topic case and it really is surprising. Uh, I didn't know Dan Markell. Uh, I didn't, I I graduated from FSU law long before he had, uh, he had come to town. Um, or at least a while before he came to town. And so I didn't know him, really didn't know much about, uh, you know, I, it was in the news that he'd been killed. But what was interesting was watching just how many people in the community actually knew him personally, had been impacted by him in one way or another, either either through uh, the synagogue or through, uh, you know, the law school. The, he was very well entrenched into the community and touched a lot of people there. Yeah. What what made you switch
1: from the law to uh, digital forensics?
0: So, you know, I had a whole lot of cases that had at least some element of digital forensics in them uh, that we really didn't understand. And so I started taking classes at the University of Central Florida, ended up getting a master's degree in digital forensics and had so much time and money wrapped up in it. I had to do something with it. (laughs) <laughs> and so I started my company. I think in two thousand eleven, left my law practice in twenty thirteen, and it's kind of been a wild ride. Then, and it's it's been fantastic. And
1: and, and I'm just curious, um, what is there like a um, singular sort of um, need that people reach out to you for? Is there one major need that most people need, or is it run the gamut?
0: So I mean, I get calls for. Uh, everything from audio and video analysis, which I really don't do much of anymore, uh, I usually pass those off to uh, computer and cell phone forensics, to uh, the cell tower analysis, uh, infotainment extraction. But if there's one thing I probably, if I specialize in anything, it's probably the cell tower analysis. And you start talking about the number of folks in the the defense side of the criminal justice community that have done, uh, you know. More than 500 cell tower analysis cases. There's about three of us. Um, I'm I'm fortunate enough to have you know had the opportunity to work you know not just for the defense but also for the prosecution in a few cases. So um, it really that's the area that's probably you know the hottest right now. And then if if you go behind that and get the the well let me let me put it this way. It, there was a point where cell phone forensics, cell tower analysis were two unique, distinct practices. And over the last, I'd say, five, six, seven years, they've kind of really grown together as we've started to get more and more uh, geolocation data out of the, the cell phones, uh, out of the tablets. And so it's kind of you know all one discipline at this point, but you know there are still those two components to it.
1: Uh, right on the money here. D-Mart, um, Gary, back to you. Do you also do work with cell tower data what is it? What does it even mean to do work? I know, you know, we follow the Brian Koberger case out of Masso, Idaho. He's accused of killing four University of Idaho students. And, uh, you know, he was said to be driving around uh, the house where the murders happened that night. And I know there they're looking at cell tower data. But what does it mean uh, in the current lexicon, Gary, to go ahead and analyze cell tower data? What kind of information does it give you? How accurate is it and how useful is it? Um, I guess, in what you do, but also in the legal profession to, you know, to try cases and things of that nature.
3: All right. Well, as you heard, I'm not the expert in this, but <laughs> I, I can I, I could tell you. I mean, listen, so, you know, before we're talking about that that geolocation data that's on the phones, the cell phone tower data was the most probably important information. Um, and it's kind of what you've heard uh, that, you know, when, when your phone's out there, you know, wandering around with your cell phone, it's pinging off of different towers. Getting you know, trying to it's communicating with different towers a bunch of information, Um, and from that from that communications, the cell phone towers know where you where you're located at, and if you take two, three, four of the cell phone tower data and you triangulate them, you can find your position. That's kind of the whole idea behind cell phone tower locations. Um, Again, before the data was stored on the phone with you know your GPS information right on your phone down accurate to a meter, um, you'd go back to the phone companies and say, hey, you know. This phone, where was it? And you, they dump you a bunch of data, and you put in. You know, for now, we have our software will analyze that data and kind of give you a location. Uh, we don't do it manually, and our extent of it really is just subpoenaing the cell phone companies for the data that we then analyze. So, that that's really what it comes down to a cell phone tower data. I'm sure somebody. In this little group here, has a little better way to explain that.
1: Well, Gary, what's it what's it like to deal with uh, subpoenaing cell phone cell phone companies? Is it easier than, let's say, uh, you know, reaching out to Apple for a favor?
3: Yeah, they're, they're just so used to it. I mean, they have a kind of a kind of a standard automated process. You give them the information, and they just return the data to you in like a standard format, and we can input that data into our cell into our uh, forensic or analysis software. So it's 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 actually very easy for us. Hmm. So yeah, that's, um, that's going like you said going to the bigger companies trying to get data is definitely a lot harder.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's what it sounds like. Uh from Rebecca Need, um to you Dr. Heislip, can they still track cell phone a cell phone if it is off but the phone battery is still in the phone? Uh Dr. Heislip, uh when does a phone no longer become trackable? Well, you, you got to take the battery out pretty much.
2: Um you can you know I guess if you jail broke an iPhone and you could control the radios and put it in airplane mode and turn them off, maybe. Um, But the average person, the phone's pinging almost all the time. And, and, uh, you know, again, as Gary said, you know, this is not my area of expertise, cell phone analysis. I'll I'll defer uh, (laughs) here and see what he says. But my understanding and, and, and the knowledge I have is it's always it's always pinging even slowly you know, when, the, when it's off, but the battery's yeah. in it.
3: I just gonna say really quickly, I know Apple phones now, even in the full off state, um, they're almost working like Air Tags, right? They're, they still have, they still transmit uh, very little low frequency or low power Bluetooth data. So mm. that's kind of a newer feature. So airplane mode isn't really airplane mode anymore. A phone off isn't a phone off. Tom said it, uh, take the battery out if you could. But that, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my current understanding of the new, Apple, uh, iPhone, and the new Androids. Yeah,
0: Androids, we've been seeing the uh, uh, pushed into airplane mode or otherwise taken off a network. They're still recording their location. And then we'll up that, we'll upload that to the Google servers later.
1: Mm. Uh, you guys will all, not just Gary, be happy to know that uh, Ethel, my boxer, is now AirTagged, and I got her uh, a little cover from Amazon that keeps, because she's had another couple of other AirTags, they fall out of her little case, so... She's air tagged and I'll tell you why it's important because two days ago, a French, a all white French bulldog appeared at my front door and uh, no collar, no nothing. Um, She was chipped, but the chip had no information. Turned out it was our brand with someone renting a home next door. It was their dog. But uh, my dog got to play for a little bit. So in case anyone's wondering about Ethel's air tag, it is uh, in place in case she goes running away. Um, so when you're walking her, you're being tracked. Just FYI. Of course, right. the whole world. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not worried about that. I we'll get. We're, we're. I'll get back to that though. My mother is worried about that. Frankie Figs, huge friend of the show, that helps us out behind the scenes all the time. Um, back to you, John. What What is Celebrite, and do you work with it? I mean, you hear this all the time, but what What the hell is it?
0: Sure. So Celebrite is a forensics cell phone forensics package. It allows you to, it's both the hardware, software components, and there's a couple of different software components, but in a nutshell, it allows you to connect to that phone, either with a tablet produced by Cellbrite, the company, or with a laptop or a desktop computer, Uh, input whichever device it is you happen to be uh, pulling the data out of, or right itself will recognize hey you've got a, an iPhone 15 plugged in uh, and then go ahead and pull that data out and pull it into a bucket uh, so that it can be preserved for uh, whatever purpose you happen to be using it for whether it's whether it's court, whether it's you know, some kind of uh, internal investigation, uh, whatever reason that may be, you're able to get that data out of the device and into a format in which then you can you can analyze it, and and review that data. Uh, you have to understand that in some of the newer iPhones, it is certainly possible to pull a couple hundred thousand pages of data out of a particular iPhone. Uh, and so, trying to look through that on the screen of your phone, that's never going to happen. In addition, there are things that you can no longer see on the screen of your phone that you can access via CellBright and via that data extraction, uh, and then through the the review component of the CellBright software. And so. Uh, it really uh, allows you to go through a whole heck of a lot more data uh, a whole lot quicker than you might otherwise be able to. You
1: guys must see some uh, strange things on those devices, but we'll get to that. And, and <laughs> Dr. Reinhardt, um, with a question here, uh, Dr. Heislip, to you, from one doctor to another, what about accessing This is the Adelsons, our smartphone browsers, especially if they were using one of those private modes. So private mode,
2: (laughs) all that does is it doesn't store the history inside your browser. So when somebody else opens the browser, they can see it and use it. The data is still readily available, can be extracted, it can be examined. Um, So it it provides, you no protection from, say, one of us analyzing the phone and seeing where you went what you were browsing for, what you were searching for. It's really more for um a guest wants to use your device and they don't want, you know, the where they went and stuff to be stored in your history
3: on your local device. Yeah, I would say of that is that uh Google or you know, if you're searching up somewhere and if you're in a incognito mode and you're searching somewhere, that search is stored at the search company, right? And whether it's Google or <laughs> Bing or whatever. So yeah, that's it's not, you know, privacy mode is is a very kind of generic term there. No privacy. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, as
1: it, as in it doesn't exist. Slightly more um, privacy. <laughs> yeah. Uh big brothers watching. Rachel Gamber, uh John to you. So Dana uh Donna, not Dana, but Donna Adelson is is really pushing for a very fast trial. Obviously, she does not like sitting in jail. Uh, The judge mentioned uh, the next court appearance in February or March, and her lawyer said, no, let's do it in January. People think she wants to go to trial, uh, and she has that right to go within 180 days, uh, I think it is. Um, But the person here is wondering, do you think she wants a speedy trial in the hopes of beating the data being unlocked from her devices? I can't imagine she's thinking in those terms, but uh, is there something to that, that the faster there is a trial, the less likely you are to get? all the necessary data you're trying to pull.
0: So we've certainly had these conversations with defense counsel in other cases. Again, I have no contact with Donna Adelson or her defense team or anything like that, but we've had conversation with uh, defense counsel in other cases where they believe there may be something damaging on a cell phone that the government may not be able to get into today. Uh, In which case, it's essentially kind of like uh, Schrodinger's cat, the data is both there and it isn't there until you actually get into the phone. And so, yeah, we've had those conversations where, you know, if it was me, I would probably go full speed ahead and try and resolve this as quick as you can. Uh, if you think that there's going to be something aggravating that comes out of that device. Um, however, I think in this particular case, you've got an iPhone, so you've got a known, um, uh, security structure where I have to think we're not dealing with somebody with an eight-digit passcode, an eight-digit alphanumeric passcode. We're dealing with somebody with a, a, you know, six-digit if that's what, I mean, that's what the iPhone defaults to at this point. If she's got some kind of an app that may force her to do that, she probably has that. There's a possibility this thing isn't protected at all. They could have been into it that evening. Um, you can certainly remove passcodes from your iPhones, and sometimes we do that for uh, elderly folks so they don't have to worry about fighting to get into those devices. Um, yeah. that may have been one of the reasons she was trying to fight Pat Sanford uh, for that cell phone.
1: Yeah. John, are they are the passwords almost always like a birth date and or a ch- you know child's birthday? Like what percentage of it is is that usually?
0: So there are something like a dozen or maybe it's two dozen passcodes. That will open about twenty percent of all cell phones, and these are pretty common things. 1234-4321-0000. 3, 4, 4, 3, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, the common stuff that'll open like twenty percent of all phones out there.
1: Wow!
0: Once you get past that, you start to get into other things that people may use, and you would you would try to build a, a dictionary for that user. Things like their date of birth. Um, I had a had a case once that involved the theft of proprietary information from a company. Uh, once we finally got into the phones by getting the passcodes through Discovery, both of the employees who were suspected had used their employee numbers as their passcodes. So, so things like the numbers that somebody would use over and over and over and over again, those are more than likely going to be those passcodes. So it's going to be you know, their date of births, their kids' date of births, maybe their date of birth backwards. And, you know, given a couple of hundred numbers, you can probably have a pretty good chance of hitting most people's passcodes.
1: Hmm. Um. Tom, I don't know if you know the answer to this from Baker Canner. did Apple at one point give in and unlock an iPhone for a criminal investigation? I remember there was a big case a while back where they were in the news. But do you happen to know if they ever actually relented? Yeah, I'm not aware of them ever relenting. Um,
2: Gary, You, I mean, I, no, know- I,
3: I would say if they did, then uh, no one's talking about it. Yeah, exactly.
0: I'm sorry. I'm going to cut you off. My oh, wait, ahead. I believe what your commenter there is referring to is the San Bernardino shooting case from Uh, seven eight years ago, where there was a big push uh, by the FBI to get them to 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 force Apple to let them bypass their encryption scheme. Yeah, and Apple said, uh, "No, we've spent billions of dollars." developing this encryption scheme. It isn't just for the U.S. We use this around the world, including in regimes where bypassing that encryption scheme could very well cause people to be killed. Uh, We don't think we're going to do that. Now, I've always kind of suspected that the FBI was floating this uh, uh, test balloon just to see if, look, if you're not going to let us bypass it for uh, terrorists, we're never going to get that chance. And when Apple kind of bucked up and said, no, we're not going to do that. Within about six months, Cellbrite had come up with a way to uh, uh, bypass that passcode. Wow, that's interesting. I, um, I
3: just want to mention one thing: if you, it's not you're definitely not have time for it now. But if you start talking about the legal side of forcing people to use their fingerprint or facial recognition, that's a whole other topic. Of you know, can you compel somebody to look at a phone to unlock it? Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. What?
1: What? What about that? I mean, some phones yeah. are right. Some phones are like fingerprint. Uh, Enabled, so like, let's say Don Adelson, you needed to put her thumb on there, you couldn't force her to stick her thumb on there, could you?
0: Oh, I've I've seen warrants written that are actually worse than just simply forcing them to put their thumb on there. Um, You know, it's they'll do exactly that. There's certainly warrants out there that'll allow someone to forcibly take DNA. Mm. Um, There are warrants out there that'll allow those kinds of things to be compelled against somebody's wishes, and they certainly do that from time to time, with the the phone passcodes, you get into a situation where it's a, a legal discussion about whether or not the act of doing what they're doing is testimonial or not. And so typically what the courts in the past have held is that a fingerprint is non-testimonial, doesn't implicate the Fourth Amendment in order to force someone to give up a fingerprint. Uh, the facial recognition, non-testimonial. If you start talking about forcing someone to give up a, a alphanumeric numeric passcode, Now that changes a little bit. And and to a certain extent, this is still undecided by the courts. We've had some great legal decisions come out of the U.S. Supreme Court over the last couple of years, Riley versus California, that basically says you need a search warrant to get into someone's cell phone to pull their data, to look at that data. Uh, Carpenter versus United States that basically says, hey, you can't go pull somebody's cell phone location information without a search warrant. And so those are sitting out there. I suspect that at some point the U.S. Supreme Court will actually end up dealing with uh, the compelling passcode issue as well.
1: Wow, that that's really fascinating, and it's stuff that I personally uh, never think about, but is uh, and it's so critical to solving a lot of these cases in terms of uh, from an evidentiary standpoint. C-Star here, uh, Gary, back to you on this one. Is there software to look for call patterns? between phones.
3: Yeah. So so that's kind of that's one of the basic things when you pull call logs, you can um, there's certain analyst uh, software that we use, analyst notebook, things like that that can draw that can take this data whether it's from the phone or from the cell companies or both and and, and do a real quick analysis of all that stuff. So that that's that's those are those are pretty mature to- tools that we have that we can use for By the uh, way, analyzing she- that.
1: Shout out. I, I saw my man Bob Mata and Ali Mata in the chat from Defense Diaries, another awesome podcast. Trying to do something with them soon because uh Bob's father was the, the defense attorney for John Wayne Gacy, the infamous wow. serial killer. And wow. Bob Mata's got some uh, new information on Gacy. So uh we're working together, I hope, to try to do something uh on that. Um Tom, to you, can you explain how? And by the way, these questions are awesome, and they're coming in fast and furious uh, from Katie Girl. Can you explain how a burner phone works, and if, why you can't get messages
2: off of them? So, typically, a burner phone means you you purchase a phone basically on the black market. It's not tied to an individual, right? You go set up a, an account at Apple or or uh, Samsung or Google, and, and you get a phone. It's worse than buying a car, right? I mean, it takes hours and they write down every piece of information you have. A burner phone is something that's, you know, not trackable to a person. You you pay for it cash in the street. Um, and but if we get the phone, you can still get everything off it. Um, you just won't know hypothetically if you found it or someone turned it in who owned the phone. But usually there'll be information in the phone. Um, you know, whether it's email or they're texting other people. Um, And you can then get subpoenas and search warrants for any accounts on the phone and and usually track down the owner that way. But, you know, the typical burner phone you think of on TV, where it's a flip phone, it's not a smartphone. It's just to make phone calls, maybe text messages. That's something that, you it's like a black market deal where you're trying to get a phone that does not link. You don't have to give a credit card to purchase it.
0: Mm-hmm. What we're really talking about is the distinction between prepaid plans and postpaid post plans. In order for the postpaid plan to happen, you have to have a credit check run to get Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T, cell phone service provider. However, all of those carriers have a prepaid plan where you pay money ahead of time. They give you a phone. It's not even always just the front frankly, more than often than not, it's not just a flip phone anymore. You can get an iPhone. You can get the latest Samsung. You can get, um, you know, the data plans and everything else. And so the only distinction with it really is, do you pay for that usage ahead of time or do you pay for it after the fact? And if there's no credit check run on you, they don't know who that phone is really tied to. You can still walk into uh, any drugstore around, Walgreens, most convenience stores, Walmart, pay cash for the phone. Uh, pay cash for a plan to set it up. And so there's no actual name tied to it. So one of the issues with the phones becomes during criminal uh, investigations, how do you actually tie that phone to an individual? Do you have a witness who you can put on the stand who can say, yeah, I was calling Tom at that phone number. Um, Do you have somebody like that who you can put up there? Or do you find that phone number in somebody's address book in another device that says, Hmm. Yeah, there's Tom's phone number, even though his name isn't tied to that account. And so while the burner phone, the so-called burner phones have this connotation of being the drug dealer phones from the wire, um, there are, you know, frankly, now every one of the the major cell phone providers has their own uh, prepaid company. This is the it's the Boosts. It's the, you know, that type of company. There are now other companies as well that have started uh buying up time on the other cell phone carriers the, the the big ones and reselling that as a prepaid phone so uh you can get into this cell phone marketplace by buying some time on t-mobile's towers and you know I'm, i can put out john's cell phone company if i'm you know inclined to do that
1: yeah I, I know in the long island serial killer case that's uh gripped the attention of the nation right now out of long you know long island uh, that he had burner phones, and I think they were able to access them and track them back. So, you know, there was that notion out there from people who don't do what you guys do that you're safe with a burner phone, but obviously you're not completely safe. But uh, Sue B. here says, um, to you, Gary, how far back can the devices be reviewed? If they delete, does it eventually delete permanently?
3: Yeah, so good question, B. The- Listen, these devices, especially the newer ones, have so much data storage capabilities that they're just gonna keep storing data until it gets to a point where it's full and then it'll start overwriting some of the data. Um, that's one of the kind of good and bad things with some of these new phones is they're terabyte. You get a terabyte of, of, of uh, solid state storage on these devices. Um, it'll store it for, I mean, you know, years, or well after the life of the phone, right? So we can often pull data that goes way back uh, on those phones. Um, this is the way the technology works. It usually doesn't overwrite the data until it really has no more places to write it and then it'll overwrite it. If you delete data on a phone, <clears throat> it is a little harder to pull off uh, off a of solid state devices, but not, not you know, our tools will do that, right? So, um, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's hit or miss on what you will get. <clears throat> Where you do run into problems or we run into problems is when you do wipe the phone, you do a factory reset on the phone, <clears throat> You're now removing that long key I talked about at the beginning. That it's a big, giant encryption key that encrypted all the data, and so when you wipe the phone, you're really just getting rid of that key, and you'll that's that's mathematically not crackable, right? Um, so, so generally speaking, we can get data pretty far back on a phone, and you know, even some of that deleted data. But once you kind of factory reset, it becomes harder, It's not impossible, to get that data off. Now, Gary. Um, you- we if do go backups. Cloud backups are super helpful. Don't forget, you know, we other other ways to get that data. Okay?
1: Gary, if you're if you're using all these uh, software programs to get all this information, what work are you actually doing, Gary? <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, actually, there. <laughs> And wait. You're just <laughs> um, no you know what it's 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 the it's the uh it's making sure it, it's not so plug and play ish there's some things you have to do to get it working right there, there's a few things you got to do to set up a lot of it's administrative making sure you're properly documenting the evidence as as though it was a you know a knife in a murder case um and then after the data has been downloaded and and then it's you know, if we do it, the extraction, then the analysis part of it, and then you dump that 50,000 page report when you're done um, and then helping, you know, you know, everyone work together to get that data. So that that's the most of it. The actual physical pulling that data is is pretty, pretty automated once the system's going.
1: I was just giving you a hard time, Gary. No. I could never do it. I could never do what you do. Nikki cuts five surviving the
3: survivor memberships gifted.
1: Um, John, did you want to add something there? I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: I was going to add just, you know, when you go out and you get that brand new iPhone 15 and you go to put it into service and you now sync that to your iCloud, you are pulling forward all of the messages that were previously stored on the iCloud. So when you start talking about how far you can go back on that phone, you may very well be going back prior to when that phone was put into service. Uh, the last time I did a cell bread extraction on my own phone, I pulled a couple hundred thousand messages going back to my first iPhone. 10 or 12 years ago. And so you got to remember, it's not just that most recent iteration that may be there. There may be other things. And one of the guys touched on the cloud service. You got to remember, I don't think they ever actually recovered Charlie Adelson's cell phone. What we ended up with, at least in the first trial, uh, was iCloud data where they pulled his messages back from the iCloud. Um, that became a, at least a slightly contentious point when we're talking about the number of messages that were actually there versus the number of messages we were seeing within the uh, uh, AT&T text message report.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah and that's the way, what like like, like what,
3: the what's up, you know, WhatsApp backs up. Not all of it's encrypted. Sometimes it's not your Google, the new Androids. You can sync them between Android, the new Pixels. That data's somewhere and yeah. usually accessible by law enforcement. Yeah, here,
1: here, here, here's the question. Who wants this one from Ginger Snaps? What's the most damning thing you've ever pulled off a device? Uh, John Sawicki, do you care to answer that?
0: I'll take that. I mentioned the uh, theft, the proprietary and trade secret information I had from a from a company. This is I don't know. I'd probably been pulling cell phone data for two or three years at this point. Um, employees of company A leaving to go to work for company B. Company A finds out, fires them, takes their cell phones at that time, and they sit in my safe for four months until we can get into them. When we open the phones up, we find within them voicemails from the president of Company B, who they were going to go to work for, telling them not just what he wanted them to take, but how much he was going to pay them for taking it. Mm. That case did not go to trial.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh Gary,
3: you're probably not allowed to share this. No, I mean it's it's the obvious, right? No, I mean, for us it's you know, we we see the, the the smoking gun all the time. Especially, I deal with a lot of cyber criminals, hackers, yeah. um, who like to actually record a lot of what they do, take pictures, screenshots of you know things they've hacked. I, I've just you know we we've seen the all all the proof we need. Like I said, of of someone's guilt in, in their own bragging. So it's it's and again, the cell phone today is what is your whole life. You're putting your whole life on there. You're using it for banking. You're using it for you're using it for hacking. You're using it for communicating most kids most of no one's got you know computers at home or laptops They're, everyone's on their phone or tablets so pulling pulling that data is pretty you know it, it's pretty revealing um
1: super fascinating fascinating i am not t Payne is uh one of our mods uh to you tom will they be able to use cell phone data to see how much wendy adelson knew in relation to the plotting of dan's murder if so, what would be the main piece of data evidence law enforcement would be looking for? Um, I'll start with maybe
2: because, again, the earlier question, how far back does it go, right? So if if uh, uh, she set up a new phone and it synced and they got the old messages like uh, you just talked about, um, that could be on there, right? But uh, Or, you know, stored in the cloud, backups from previous phones. But what they're looking for really... Um, she didn't pull the trigger, right? So they're looking for conspiracy, and an overt act. So they have to show that she knew they had to have talked at one point about killing this person, and then someone had to take an act. So they have to show that she had knowledge of this conspiracy to kill this person. And That's what they're looking for. Um, you know, my guess is they probably already have it if they you know arrested her, fly in the country. But um, they're really looking for the knowledge of the conspiracy. She'll be charged with you know conspiracy to commit murder, which is you know basically charged the same as murder um but as far as will it be on there it, i mean the murder was what What year 2013 14 so it's really hard to say if anything will be on there um but if she's talking about it now and incriminate herself and then they can back it up with other people uh with you know uh People have already arrested um, and show that, you know, the conspiracy happened and she can because she doesn't have to get the overt act. Right. It's the thing about conspiracy. Me and Gary talk about killing somebody. And I say, you know, I change my mind. I'm not going to kill this person. And Gary goes and kills him. I get charged with murder, too. So it's conspiracy. You, you talk about it and plan it and then you change your mind and someone goes and doesn't an overt, overt act to further that crime. You're going down, too, for that conspiracy. So um, that's 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 the thing about conspiracies.
1: Hmm. Um, from less noise, I get it. Less noise. Uh to you, John. Can emails and texts from the time of Dan's murder in 2014 still be accessed in the cloud?
0: It's a good question, and I don't know that we know the answer to that. We certainly know that they pulled Charlie Adelson's text messages from the cloud, but they did that back in probably 2015, 2016, somewhere back in that time, because we had a first trial uh, for Siegfredo Garcia and Katie McVanua. Um How long does Apple let that data from a uh, dormant cell phone sit there? It's hard to say. Um, I would certainly expect that the stuff from from uh, Charlie's latest phone was probably there, um, but it's, it's really hard to say just how far they're gonna be able to go back on the cloud. I would expect to go back a couple of years, but I don't know that it's gonna be permanent. Mm.
1: Um. Here's a super sticker from Hillary uh, Bethencourt uh, to you, Gary. Can they use a high def photo? These are interesting questions. To open a phone with facial recognition enabled, instead of cracking a password.
3: Yeah, good question. And the answer is no, because the the face uh, facial recognition of at least the iPhones and the more modern phones is actually a three D face map, right? If you ever look at how it works, it's not just a standard photo of you. It's measuring depth also. And that data is stored within the uh, facial recognition stuff. Hmm. So it's, um. not just, it's not just a, a, a face and a, a, just a, a flat picture won't do it. The older technology was tricked that way. And they they, they said, OK, no, enough of that.
1: Hmm. Uh, from Heather and Tom, uh, how do they get into older phones? They keep old methods alive like a way back machine, LOLs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these uh
2: companies uh when they develop the you know bypasses for for different models, once they're developed, they're there, right? And then when they move on to and you know, OS iOS moves from thirteen, fourteen to fifteen, they still have the the you know uh, workarounds for the old uh software uh versions. Um and the one thing that is nice about these, you know, the software, whether it's celebrite or, or Axiom, a lot of it'll 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 try to recognize the type of phone when you connect it and then say, okay. If it can't, if it recognizes it, and you say, yep, that's what it is. It's an iPhone 13. It, it knows, okay, I know how to get in this one. It just runs. If it can't recognize it, you've got to give it, no, this is what it is. And then it'll try what it knows. Um, but yeah, it, they they keep those around. Um, you know, and if you go way back, you know, <laughs> you talk about the old chip off and JTAG days where you're connecting a little, it was like playing, um, a, a game where you touch the sides, right?
0: I still have an IP box sitting in my office. So I
3: was going to say one, one interesting thing about that is we're, you know, our cell phone kits and John, I have them, um, They're full of connectors. I mean, some of the craziest connectors you ever, I don't know, you open up this kit and it's got 60 or 70 different connector types. Because remember, I think of the old phones, there was no standard. It wasn't just a, you know, lightning connector or USB. They had some crazy connectors and our kits come with a lot. And the new, some of the better cell phone kits will actually, you know, light up or give you a number and say, pull that. That's the kit connector you need. Because some of those old phones and some of those
0: foreign phones just have the strangest connectors you'll ever find. Wow, that's and interesting. It's not really just even the, the connectors. Some of those connectors actually have software embedded within them. Hmm. They inject into the phone that will let you uh, into certain models or let you pull data from certain models. Hmm.
1: Hey, John, uh, so Maui Swift, a little more specific here. How far back years-wise can you get texts and voicemails?
0: <laughs> In terms of years, none, zero. Um, But in terms of how far back can you pull text messages, it depends on the carrier. Verizon, I think, is running a couple of weeks right now. Uh, T-Mobile, I think I've seen some text messages going back a few days. AT&T, they're gone instantly. Uh, Sprint, I think they're gone instantly. They just don't retain that stuff. Good point from before was just because it's not on your phone, the person
3: who sent it, person received it might still have it as well.
0: That's exactly it. Is it just because it's not on the carrier's system anymore? Uh, I always tell lawyers, there's two phones involved, at least two phones involved yeah. in every text message. And if you can't get it from the carrier, you can start looking to those devices. Or, or a backup, like we talked earlier. You know, you backup. Backup your, phone, your iCloud,
2: or your backup Android and Google Drive. A lot of times, if you don't have the phone, if, if you can't crack the phone or you don't get the phone, but you know they had a phone and you do a search warrant to Apple for their iCloud data or Google for their Google Drive data, and there's a backup in there, The software will let you analyze that backup just like a phone. And whatever was on that phone when they backed it up and whatever choices they made, whether they backed up messages or not, which most of them they do, the messages are there from from that backup.
0: Yeah, when we looked at uh, Charlie Adelson's stuff for the Garcia trial, that was out of the iCloud. And so you were looking at it in Cellbrite, just like it had been pulled out of the phone. It was kind of slightly different in terms of there's multiple backups instead of just one device, but you're still looking at the same text messages in the same format within uh,
1: uh, Leela Love wants to know, please reveal the purring cat. We have a very smart audience. Does one of you have a cat that is purring? Well, no one. Must, must be the purring voices in her head um maybe a fan (laughs) adam lamparello everyone's like stuffing their cat under a carpet right now um adam lamparello ten dollar super sticker here's an attorney there's a great chance that donna is going to be found not guilty there is zero evidence that donna knew about the plot before the fact john suiki uh there's not really a digital forensic question here but uh you're a lawyer you want to take a swat
0: at that so, number one, we haven't seen everything there is that's out there. I, I'm, I wouldn't pretend to tell you that I know everything that exists in terms of evidence against Donna. More importantly, it isn't just evidence of what happened before the fact. But You're going to have the bump come into play. You're going to have, in fact, a series of bumps come into play. Um, you're going to have uh, the piece that we just got last month. The, the flee, which state attorney's office is going to present that, and they should, is going to present that as consciousness of guilt that she was trying to flee the country and go to a place with no extradition treaty with the U.S., that is not going to play well to Donna. So I don't know if you know whoever posted that is actually on Donna Adelson's defense team or not, but I think it's, it's a little optimistic for Donna for somebody to post the You know, there's a there's a great likelihood she's going to be acquitted in this case. I don't know that that is the case. Well, Adam is
1: probably he's I know he's an attorney, maybe criminal defense. So uh, that's their job Um, to you, uh, Tom, from Heather N. All carriers record text emails, etc. are they recorded by the actual carriers, Tom?
2: So you're talking Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. I mean, yeah. you talking yeah. about it, right? But, Is there anything
1: uh, that's private in our world anymore, Tom? Well, Is they're there not anything doing email stuff.
2: They do text and phone records. They're not really the carriers per se. They're not recording a lot of stuff outside of that that I'm aware of. I mean, I, I could not be wrong on that. Uh, the, the the providers, are, the cell phone providers, the email providers, um, it's just too much data for the carriers to try to record everything going through the uh, phone. Uh,
0: an
3: important thing with the text messages today, if you look at iMessage or uh, Android's new RCS messages, those aren't your typical standard old fashioned text messages anymore, right? They they look like text messages, they act like text messages, but in reality, they're they're internet data that's going across. Different types of servers. It's going through Apple. It's not necessarily going through the carriers like the traditional SMS text messages of the, the years ago. So yeah, text messages is a little different now as well.
1: Hmm. Uh, Rosemary Romero here. Um, I think I could probably answer this. I'll try, John. But Donna, Wendy, Charlie, and Harvey have had their devices scrubbed by a computer expert who could be tech savvy, could permanently delete information. I mean what would be if she had it at her at the airport and Harvey had his
0: why would they be walking around with blank phones right um that's my yeah i would say that you're spot on is is number 1 you're not leaving the country with no data on your phone whatsoever generally although it wouldn't be a bad way to travel back and forth across the US border because there certainly is a lower expectation of privacy when you're coming back into the US so on one hand it would make some sense to wipe your phone and then Resync when you get back into the US. On the other hand, uh, even if that phone was wiped and they started over fresh on the day that they were leaving, whoever examines those devices is going to be able to tell them. And why would you do that before you just happen to leave the country? And so now you're talking about additional evidence that they were trying to hide something before she fled the country.
3: Hmm.
1: Um I'm with analytical Blarney on this one, and I know my mom is. I need a Xanax for this convo, knowing how much uh we are being tracked. Um, Dom's mom, who just gifted a membership. Do we know if Harvey's phone was confiscated at the airport too, or just Donna's? I believe it was just Donna's, but they went back to Harvey's with a search warrant for an iPad and a cell phone. Um, John, you're the attorney. What's the threshold here for a search warrant? Super sticker from Irish Twins, Mom 92 six thank you but what is the threshold you can't just go and grab someone's cell phone so how hard or easy is it to get a search warrant these days
0: <laughs> uh, well I, I mean the, the best way that I can put that is the, the the stand for getting a search warrant is probable cause you have to show that there's probable cause of crime' been committed and that there's evidence uh, relevant to that crime that's likely to be found in the device itself um, it's not an incredibly high, Bar, but there certainly has to be some indication that this is that there's going to be evidence of that crime that's found. Um, I understand that you know you have Donna Adelson's phone collected at the airport. Uh, Jason Newland wrote a search warrant for it. I'm not sure if the search warrant was written before or after she was arrested and the phone was seized. Law enforcement could certainly grab that phone temporarily, write the search warrant for it immediately before they opened it up and get into it that way. I also understand that there was not just Harvey's phone and an iPad, but a second phone that was collected the next day in the uh, condo search warrant. And so I don't know if that's one of their older phones. I don't know if that's you know potentially a third phone that they have between the two of them or some other reason. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that piece plays out.
1: Yeah. And John, since this is obviously a criminal investigation, it's been been going on since 2014. What are, you know, you just mentioned Newland with the state attorney's office. What are they looking for? Like what, you know, is there a place you go to right away when you when you crack those phones? I mean, I assume it's text messages. I assume it's emails. But is there anything that we're not thinking of?
0: So one of the most Powerful tools for going through. I think what I said earlier could be a couple hundred thousand pages of data. Uh, maybe not necessarily in Donnie and Donald. I'm sorry, in Donna and Harvey's case, but certainly uh, in in a phone that's used significantly, you can have huge amounts of data. One of the most significant tools is the timeline, which lets you view everything in chronological order. And so then you can start looking at those time periods around significant events. So you've got uh, the, the, what the first couple of attempts to hire a hitman. you've got the, you've got the first trip to Tallahassee by Garcia and Rivera. Uh, you've got the next trip with Garcia and Rivera to Tallahassee. Um, you've got when the money's being, you, you, I'm sure that, uh, (laughs) Georgia Gableman has a timeline already built out. Somebody at the state attorney's office has already built out this timeline of what's significant to them. And they can go to that chronological listing of all of the events in the phone. And so they're not just looking at text messages. They're not just looking at phone calls. They'll be able to look at all of those events in chronological order. Uh,
1: Extended play with a super sticker here. Hoping Wendy is next up. She deserves to be wearing the infamous turtle suit. Season's greetings from Santa Barbara. That's where I got married to the COE in Santa Barbara. Uh, To you, Gary, um, from Marianne Engel if wendy was at the crime scene uh and there's you know she was definitely near the crime scene but if she was actually there is it possible to prove this if she had her cell phone with her in other in other words is a cell phone also a geo
3: tracker yeah that's what i was saying before that's that's one of the best and easiest ways to put someone at a, at a location is you know if they had their phone now someone could have had their phone but we can prove that that phone was at the location and we could do that with the cell towers and with GPS data from the maps and the phone itself. That phone has so, that phone has so many sensors, it can tell which way it was pointing, which direction it was flipped up, was in your pocket. Not, I mean, it's insane. So with, with the phone at the scene, you could get a, a ton of information about you know, the location of it. And, and you just need to know who had it.
1: By the way, these are amazing questions tonight, but this perhaps could be the best uh, from the COE, uh, otherwise known as my wife, This is a true story. Um, I have been completely locked out of Facebook. I wanted to call customer service because that's what I usually do, but there's no customer. Um, What do I do? Someone give me help. How do I get my Facebook account back? Hire hire
3: a hacker online who hacks Facebook accounts.
1: How do I do that, Gary? We'll talk later. (laughs) (laughs) I have to talk anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm about to ask Gary one of the weirdest things that he's been asked, and he's going to tell me to go basically f myself. But it's coming up, (laughs) Gary. After this, Um, Triple Q here. What ways? I didn't put on the screen. What ways do you go about updating methods to keep up with technology? That's an interesting question. I mean, we were just saying that law enforcement is always a half step uh, behind. So, what do you do to keep up with it? And Tom, I'll throw that to you. Uh, well, it's for the
2: agents and ourselves, you know, as examiners, if you're constantly training, constantly going to professional education, learning new methods, um, and being taught, you know, uh, basically from, from the, you know, companies, whether it's uh, magnet or celebrate, or they're saying, this is what changed. This is what our product now does, uh, there's certifications in those products. It, and then. Um, you also have to be proficient in that. So when you learn a new skill about a new technology method that, that you know, a new piece of software that does something different, you have to learn it, practice it, become proficient in it, and then be able to testify about it. And so it's really just a constant, you're constantly learning and uh, in, in, in staying abreast uh, of changes. Uh, you know, we're, me, I, we're not the ones doing and identifying the new, you know, uh, workarounds within, a mobile phone, uh, you know, new operating system. Um, the the soft the the forensic software companies are doing that, and then we, when they come out with it, we have to learn it, we have to identify it, and basically become an expert in it, so we can testify about it. um And we do that by going to training, going to professional education, practicing. You know, I know Gary and I. You know, when I was working with Gary, you know, we're constantly doing uh, quality exams and. and, and you know, the field officer would send out, all right, here's a new thing, test it. Um, and you get tested to make sure you know how to do it so you can keep your certifications. And a lot of the certifications you have, uh, whether it's through the federal government or through a private company like IASIS, um, you have to take so many professional education hours and, and then to keep your certifications. And some of them require you to retest every so many years to show you're still proficient in, the, in these skills because it changes so
3: rapidly.
1: Hmm. Uh, this is proof that a this is proof that a time machine exists, probably built by Gary. Misty says, "My son locked my daughter's iPod. I, f- I forgot iPods existed for 45 years, many years ago. Um, something is uh, definitely off there. Uh, maybe she meant days. I don't know, but uh, who knows? Um, there was I don't one. have that in
3: the kit, by the way. Yeah, I are on um, your own." The
1: time time machine is coming. Um, John Sawicki, to you, and I I actually am curious to get all your guys' take on this. And I think, Gary and Tom, when you guys were on a long time ago, and I think I had you on for the Idaho murders. um, We already put that one up, COE. Stop giving me a hard time. They already answered it. Um, Oh, here, here is a super sticker. Have such devices such as Alexa, have devices such as Alexa been used by law enforcement? How much of that data is actually stored in the cloud, if any? John Sawicki, that is another uh, way they can get you.
0: So, there have actually been some legal battles over whether or not the snippets that have been recorded via Alexa uh, can be seized by law enforcement after an incident. There was a, I believe it was a homicide in the Arizona area where uh, Amazon ended up in a major legal battle with law enforcement about whether or not they were going to have to produce. Uh, snippets of voice from Alexa, Uh, law enforcement was hoping that the struggle had been captured on Alexa in the middle of the night. As it turns out, there was nothing in the the snippets themselves, uh, at least in that case, but it was the first case that I'm aware of where law enforcement was going after something like that. And of course, the the electronic service provider, Amazon in that case, was resisting that, uh, that attempt. I've seen data pulled out of uh, Android phones, not necessarily Alexa data, but uh, somebody navigating via voice uh, when they're using turn-by-turn directions and pulled snippets of voice back that way. Uh, you know, we were talking about the burner phones earlier, and that it doesn't necessarily indicate who had the account, let alone who had the phone. But I'll tell you what, voice snippets certainly go a long way as towards who was actually on onto that phone at the time, certain things were done. And j- just on a uh, similar note there, uh, I know Google, Google has a feature called takeout.
3: If you, everything that Google stores about you can be pulled, you can you go to your own account, pull it. It's under the Google takeout features, look it up. Um, one of the things that pulls is every voice command you've given your phone or your, you know, your Google device, it records it as audio and you can actually pull it down and hear it yourself. But of course, law enforcement or, you know, whatever can, can access that data through, through proper legal process. Every snippet of voice that you've ever left out there is, is, is recorded.
1: Hmm. Uh, Space coast. This must be a question. My mother asked BRB equals B. Even I knew that be right back. (laughs) Um, My mother must be in the chat. Um, gary was just talking about something but i have no idea what this even means from ski hat sarah who's obviously smarter than me how did the google
3: numbers play into this gary what is she talking yeah, about? yeah i'm assuming google voice um oh, google has a free service where there, you can get a, a phone number from google assigned to your account and then you can use that phone number um in lieu of your regular phone number, um, the way they the way that works in, in its simplest forms is it's a relay. So Google will give you a number. You can give that number to all your friends, or family, or business, or whatever you want. And then when they call that number, all it's doing is going to Google and then relaying that phone mess or phone uh, connection to your device. Or multiple devices, for that matter. So, what what can we do with that? Is basically, we can go to Google and you know show show me all the phone calls that came into that number. Uh, You can actually call out of that number, and you can get text messages there too. So it's like a kind of a cheap second burner phone, if you will. um, Mm -hmm. That it's it's fully accessible for data from from us and
0: into Google.
1: It's like a a second burner phone.
0: Nice advantage that you're leaving a record in two places instead of just one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
1: Uh, a few more questions, and then I've got a final question for these guys. But from Heather Wren uh, to Tom, how do you extract stuff transmitted on a covert channel? I have no idea what that means, but I'm hoping you do.
0: Uh,
3: Signal, maybe. I,
2: I, I'm guessing you're 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 thinking of Signal or Snapchat or WhatsApp, Telegram. Um, mm-hmm. Telegram. So a lot of that is, is stored on your device, right? It, uh, John talked about it earlier where it's encrypted end to end, but it can still be stored on your. device device and a lot of this forensic software, it's it's again it's similar to a game of cat and mouse. As new, as new apps come out, they will eventually figure a workaround to get that data and extract it. Um and they even have ways to write custom scripts to to if it's a brand new um covert channel uh app um to extract that data and so you can get it on the device is, is the way you get it. Um, or backups on some of them like
1: uh rosemary romero uh we always hear this term now um especially uh you know in uh criminal cases geofencing we hear it otherwise but uh gary what is this the fbi talked about a lot uh, about a lot about the use of that technology in the alec murdoch trial what is geofencing
3: yeah i mean just in general it's basically um you know a geofence would be something like you set up an area uh, on a map a physical area and you would say you know five miles from this house if anyone crosses in or out of that, that would be like a geofence. That's usually the way we use the terminology. So uh, I'm not sure how it was used in the trial, but geofencing really refers to like being able to identify a location based on GPS data or, or triangulation of itself towers. But it's basically being able to put someone in a map and, and their location and triggering their location uh, if they leave or come out of or in, out of, uh, in or out of a certain area. That's, again, usually how it's used, if that's what they mean in that case.
1: Uh, John, Ski Hat, Sarah's back at it. What's more difficult, Apple or Android to try to crack?
0: Uh, I don't really know the answer to that. It's, and frankly, I don't know that one is significantly more difficult than the others. At this point, I think the, the challenge may be particular Android cell phones. At least with Apple, every device is made by the company. The software is relatively similar. When you start talking about Android devices, everybody and their brother turns out an Android cell phone. And there are a number of different iterations within each one of those. And then you get particular um, software iterations within each of those as well. And so just the number of possible variations with Android significantly greater than it is with Apple. And so from my standpoint, I would say the Android.
1: Mm, There you go. Um... Gary, to you, perfect panel to explain how a text deleted by a user can be recovered. Um, if you go too technical, I won't understand it. Even if you don't, I won't understand it. But what about that? How do you recover, it, delete it? Is something my mother always says to me, Joel, don't text, don't do this, don't do this on the internet because it's there forever. Is she right?
3: Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, deleted text, deleted messages again if you you know it depends on what technology you're using but if it's some old standard like you know text messaging it's passing through 10 different servers right it's 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 stored on your phone if you delete it you know what's deleted is the pointer to that text but the data resides somewhere in memory uh it's just as as i mentioned before you have a huge storage device and it's not going to be overwritten uh, it'll be available to be overwritten, but usually a device won't overwrite it. So the tools go in, pull the raw data, and we can see what it was. We can go to another server and say, "What you know, what data passed through your server, and it'll pass through there as well. That goes for just text messages, email messages, email servers, uh, you know, phone applications. Deleted stuff generally isn't deleted. You know. There you, you know, the
1: deleted, go. Deleted does not mean deleted. Bill Davis, right. super sticker. Um John, I'll send this one to you. How much does the tech savviness level of the perp factor in how evidence rich the device would be? I cannot imagine a woman Donna Adelson's age would be techie.
0: Yeah, I would say that that's certainly something that law enforcement's gonna be concerned about. Uh, They probably see this more frequently on computers than necessarily on cell phones because, to a certain extent, unless they've been uh, jailbroken, or in terms of the Android phones rooted, you're pretty well stuck with the operating systems for both of those devices. But in terms of uh, both Windows and Apple computers, uh, one of the things you start looking for is anti-forensic uh, methods that may you know, remove artifacts that you would otherwise be seeing, some of the, the cleaner applications, um, some of the other applications that will otherwise overwrite things. Those are are typically termed anti-forensic tools that may be there that you want to be considering and certainly considering just how uh, technologically savvy that individual is.
1: Mm. Um, Tom, I'm going to expand this. Can the government, not just the FBI, uh, use satellite technology to gather information? Is that something that only tech companies have access to?
2: Um, when I'm just guessing when they say gather information, they talk about gather information from Phones, I, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so, since that's what
2: we're talking so, about. You know, the new the new iPhones have the emergency satellite capability to make sat satellite calls. Um, I've never dealt with it personally. Um, John, I don't know if you have uh, with, you know, the emergency SOS satellite calling uh, and what kind of data is being being transmitted there. But in theory, right, with the government, at least, it um, may potentially. Uh, you know, private sector, right, if, if the signal is going from the phone to a satellite and down to a ground station, and you know, to, to to be able to make that emergency call, uh, there is data available that potentially could be, uh, used, um, how much or who has access to it. I've never been involved in that and it's fairly new. So I, I, you know, can't make a guess.
1: Hmm. Uh, Jesse (laughs) can 72 for Gary here. Um, I think a lot of people wonder about this. How easily can the average person hack and access your photos? A lot of people
3: keep interesting photos on their phone.
1: What yeah, about
0: that so, so I got
3: to be honest, the, the way this usually happens is social engineering. People somehow being able to um, impersonate you and get access to your iCloud or your, your Google Drive or your Google Photos or whatever it might be. Um, the average person's not hacking you in, in a traditional sense. That you you know you're you know intruding you know remotely into a system and through backdoors and you know bouncing signals all over the world. Um, they're getting they're getting your data through social engineering and and tricking the system into thinking it's you. And that's We're how that major celebrity <laughs> situations occur. That then that's all that's almost how they always happen or an insider. But that's really not the. It's really a case of social engineering.
1: Mm. Tom, did you want to add to that? I was just
2: gonna say it is, you know, I think Gary was mentioned when said, you know, social engineering, like, you know, trying to guess you're guessing the uh, security questions or you're you're calling into Apple and trying to impersonate the person and, and give some information. But a lot of these people, the, the way their photos or accounts are given is they are tricked themselves, right? You're getting phishing emails, cooking emails, and um, or you get a phone call and you give up the information unknowingly, and then that information is used to, to access your account.
1: Mm. Uh, Michelle Burns uh, to John, does a silent wallet protect you from being tracked? I don't even know what a silent wallet is. What is a silent wallet?
0: I have no idea what a silent wallet actually is. but Gary does. Gary knows.
3: And they mean those uh, uh, NFC protected wallets. That's my guess.
0: Oh, okay. So, So what we're talking about is the near field communications chip that may be in your credit cards, maybe in your phone, something like that and whether or not that gets picked up. And is that going to become censored from access information? Absolutely. But your phone still has to interact with a cell tower, or it's worthless to you. And if you're interacting with a cell tower, the cell company is going to have a record of which tower it was, and not just which tower, but which side of the tower that was coming off of. And that's still going to let the carrier and anyone who can get a hold of that carrier data figure out, we have a pretty good idea of where this particular transaction probably came from. Tom has a good silent wallet story.
1: <laughs> Tom,
3: you I, want to share that?
0: <laughs> sure, sure. I dropped off for a second,
2: so I didn't catch the question. But silent wallet question. So the, Gary the NFC,
3: around. the NFC protected uh, wallets, yeah. and, and the dangers of having NFC stuff in your pocket.
1: Yeah. So we were at DEFCON. Um, you guys, guys got to explain these. What's NFC? What right. is
2: that? A uh, near field communication. Your, you know, the RFID readers. Oh, okay. The, your smart chips on your on your. Uh, credit cards and so we're at las vegas at the hacker conference defcon um and they had a rfid reader around the entrance to a ballroom and we walk in the ballroom and up on the wall and a huge screen is scrolling everything they picked up with rfid oh boy walk through the door was scrolling on a thing and i we just happened to look up and <laughs> i had my military id in my pocket and it says Colonel Thomas Heist and in a bunch of numbers. And I'm like,
1: oh, that's just <laughs> Um That's why you can never go to one of those conferences. Uh, that would scare the hell out. That's probably second after prison, things that scare me. I don't want to be hacked. So uh, these guys have given a tremendous amount of time. Let's uh, finish off with this question tonight. Um, and, Tom, I'll start with you. We'll go uh, in in uh, clock. What is the word? Clock something. Clockwalk. I'm so fried i so fried. Uh Tom, I think I asked you and Gary this the last time, but how has uh crime changed um in the modern world? Is it much easier now uh to catch criminals because of the advent of technology, or is it easier for criminals to pull it off because of the advent of technology? What do you think? So a lot of
2: it's a, there's a lot more crime, obviously online and with credit card fraud and stuff like that, um, in, in, with technology enabled crimes, but in my opinion, it's, it's a lot easier to catch them because your digital footprint, Gary and I teach a couple of classes together and we talk about the digital footprint and the, everything you're doing is leaving your digital footprint somewhere. And there's just trace evidence, uh, within, um, uh, on the internet, on your devices, it, it, with your companies, um, and you unknowingly are giving this information up, and law enforcement can get it. So I, I think it's the later in that it's easier to catch people because of everyone is so trusting in the technology, and they use it for everything they do, um, and we can get that evidence. Hmm.
1: Uh, Gary, your thoughts: easier, harder, because of uh, the advent of technology to commit so or to can, catch
3: criminals? So two things: One, I want to. I'm going to go back to something I said a while ago. But first, to answer that question, I would say what I find most different about crime today is where it can be committed from. Right. You now can be, you know, pickpocketed from, you know, uh, someone in Russia. Right. You, someone can steal your money. So it's a lot easier using technology to be a victim of crime from anywhere in the world and have very little chance of, of uh, getting any any sort of. Uh, Um, restitution or any sort of, you know, justice out of that. So I think that's the biggest change is the fact that we can now commit crimes uh, quickly and at great distances. So that's it. And the other thing we're talking kind of what you're saying before about, you know, leaving digital evidence and stuff like that. Someone mentioned a while back about needing a Xanax because you're being tracked. But what's important to note there, it was a good point, but who's tracking you? It's not the government, right? Everyone talks about the government, but you know, law enforcement can get the data, but it's the big companies, right? It's the Googles and the Apples and, and you know, any technology company that wants to sell you something and, and you know, be, bring you into their ecosystem, right? Those are the ones who are tracking you. Um, and that, there's the one, they're the ones we're giving all the data to. And they're the ones, and, and it depends on how responsible they are with that data, That how easy it is you can become a victim of a crime if their data gets leaked. So I think that's really been the transformation of, of technology and crime. Hey,
1: Gary, quick question. Why, if I'm talking to a friend today and uh, phones are in our back pockets right. and I say, hey, I'm going
3: up to Canada in a few nice days. Ad on phone Why, am Why
1: am I seeing ads for winter coats? What is that? What's
3: going on? I actually have had this discussion just recently. I don't know, to be honest, how much, because how many times you talk about something that doesn't show up on the phone and you don't notice it, right? It's, you notice the ones that do. Not, and, and, mm-hmm. and it's a good chance that if you're talking about Canada, you may have searched the. You know a week ago or two weeks ago about it so the problem is i think the if you get, and lawyers have looked at all the you know terms of service when you agree to using these phones i don't know if it says in there or that they actually listen to your voice and maybe they do now i don't know but it's it's an interesting thing i don't know if it's just confirmation bias sometimes but um mm. just assume you're being listened to and tracked by companies so they can sell you stuff that's it
1: <laughs> Punky is a huge friend of the show gifting yet another membership John Sawicki, you get the final word here. Uh, How is uh, digital forensics and uh, technology in general uh, change crime for the better or for the worse?
0: Well, I think it's certainly for for, uh, law enforcement and for probably uh, the citizens of the whole, probably for the better. Uh, Think about the types of evidence they collected in this case, the surveillance video off of the buses, the cell tower analysis, the... Uh, GPS tracker that was in one of the rental cars. The, all of those things that, as a result of technology and the the work that uh, you know the Tallahassee Police Department and the FBI put in, uh, that they were able to go back and figure out, hey, here's what actually happened. If this had happened in 2000 instead of 2014, this is probably a stone cold who done it, and we still don't know what actually happened.
1: Mm. Uh, for those who do not know, you do now. Tallahassee-based John Sawicki, he uh, well, now he's in Tampa, too, uh, founded Forensic Data Corp. He is also an attorney. He's licensed as a private investigation agency in Florida and Georgia. He knows everything, everything in your phone. He's seen it all. Uh, Tom Hyslip, same deal. Professor in the criminology department at the University of South Florida. Government's mad at him that he got hacked at a hacking conference, but it's all good. Uh, Gary can only call him Gary, special agent. That's all you need to know about him. He's a special agent. He does interesting things all day long. Uh, Tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, you've got America's most respected detective coming off a knee replacement surgery and retired FBI agent Scott Duffy. We're going to be talking uh, those jailhouse calls. But how? They're going to impact the investigation. We did two hours on uh, the psychology of it. What's going on with the Adelsons? Thank you to Lisa Boris, great show. Joel Coe, mods, best guests, and better community. Until then, guests, hang on for one moment. Love you, America. That's my homage to Waldo Rivera. Love you, Tallahassee, Florida, and everywhere.